rather than a virtue. I mean, they think it's silly for you to to believe in something. Um, There's a guy, maybe some of you have heard of him, named Christopher Hitchens. Um, he was a pretty, uh, I would say famous, but let's use the word notorious uh, atheist a few years ago, and he's, um, he's, he's died now. Um, and he said this about faith. Um, it's pretty in your face. Faith is the surrender of the mind. It's the surrender of reason. It's the surrender of the only thing that makes us different from other animals. It's our need to believe and to surrender our skepticism and our reason, our yearning to discard that and pull, put all our trust or faith in something or some, someone or something. All of that is the sinister thing to me. Out of all the virtues, all the supposed virtues, faith must be the most overrated. Now, this is something you would expect from Hitchens if you're familiar at all with his writing. Very bright guy. Um, But I don't think he properly understood, obviously, what we mean and what the Bible means when uh, we talk about biblical faith. He saw it as the opposite of reason. And I think a lot of people see it that way. And according to him, it's something, faith is something that you have in spite of knowledge and in spite of facts. It's like you see the facts, you see the knowledge, and it goes in the opposite direction. Faith is you believe it in spite of those things. And as believers, we would say we believe not in spite of facts, but because of facts and because of the knowledge that we have in God's word. That leads us to have faith in what we can't see. But despite all of that, Despite a proper understanding of faith, it's still a a mystery to many people. And maybe to you, you've thought at times, why? Like, why doesn't, why do we have to believe in something that we can't see? Why, why does God insist on faith being so important to us? Well, think of it this way. Faith, by definition, honors the one in whom you trust. By definition, it says something about the person that you are putting your faith in. It says something about their character. It says that their character is worthy of your reliance and of your trust. Um, If I say this morning, I trust, I'll embarrass him, Mike Nichols. Okay, I'm I'm making an assertion about his character. I'm saying he is a person that I've seen act in a certain way. I know things about him and therefore I rely on him. I I trust his character. And it's the same way when you say you're trusting in Christ. You are positioning yourself under his authority, and you're making a very clear statement about who he is. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. And so I'm going to place my faith in him, in his character. Uh, The author of Hebrews explains this pretty clearly in Hebrews chapter 11. Obviously, you know this as the faith chapter, but here's a, a key part of this. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe a couple of things. First, that he exists. You have to make a, you have to believe something. You have to make a statement about the reality of God, and then you have to make a statement. You have to believe that he rewards those who seek him. You have to believe in his goodness, something about his character. That's, that's faith. Those are both statements about God's character, that he exists and that he is good, that he rewards those who seek him. And so it's because of that, that connection between faith and the character of the one we are believing that faith is an indispensable part of our lives. Because faith positions us rightly before God. 
It makes a statement about who we are and about who God is when we believe rightly. And it helps us or it puts us in a position to properly relate to God. And therefore, God requires faith of us. And that's exactly why in the beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus calls people to believe in the good news. Because they are rightly positioning themselves by that belief before God. I mean, Mark chapter 1, in verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. So there's a reality that he states there, and here's how you respond to that. Repent and believe in the gospel. People were to turn from their sinful reliance on self, from their trust in self, from their own ordering of their lives. They were to repent of that and turn in the opposite direction and believe the news about God's authority, about his reign, and about the inbreaking of his kingdom in the world through Jesus Christ. They were to rightly position themselves before God. And if it's about his authority and his reign, and trusting in that and believing that, we have certainly seen evidence in the Gospel of Mark of the authority and the reign of Jesus Christ, haven't we, as we've gone along? We've watched Jesus calm the storm with his words, hush, and the storm immediately obeys. We've watched him command an entire legion of demons, and they instantly respond and obey his words. He acts with decisive authority, and that's why faith is so central to our lives, and that's why faith is central to our passage today. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And in this passage today, it's going to call us to respond to the authority of Christ with the right kind of faith, with true faith, to trust in his person. And so today in this story, we're going to see the faith of two different people. And both of these people respond properly to demonstrations of authority. And so I think these two are examples of, of faith for us. And this is a, a central piece to this, to this text today. Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. And so today we're going to study three keys to true faith, to exercising true faith. So three keys to exercising true faith that will increase, hopefully, increase our trust in Christ's authority. Three keys to exercising true faith that will increase our trust and reliance on his authority. All right? So first one of these. Recognize your need. This is in verses 21 to 26. Now, as we get going into this passage today, it's really important that we remember where we are in the story of Mark. All right. The last couple of weeks, uh, we've seen Jesus very close to the Sea of Galilee or on the Sea of Galilee or crossing over the Sea of Galilee. That's what he's done consistently. Um, If you just follow the geography of his movement here, it's almost comical to watch what happens. Look back at chapter 4 and verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. All right, so they cross over. Chapter 5 and verse 1, they came to the other side of the sea. All right, so this whole interaction with the demon-possessed man. 5 verse 18 
as he was getting into the boat, all right, so the people, they're terrified of Jesus and his authority. So they say, we want you out of here. So they get back in the boat to go across to the other side. And now look down at chapter 5 and verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side. So this whole section, these couple of chapters of Mark are Jesus just going back and forth across the Sea of Galilee. So he was in the Gentile territory with the demon-possessed man and all the villagers there. They asked him to leave. So he crosses back over again into the Jewish, onto the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee or of the lake there. And with his return, you can imagine what happens. It's sort of like he never left because the crowds find out immediately and they come back to him. Look at verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. The crowds begin to form around him. And this is, if you're tracking in this book with us, this is what you expect. Jesus shows up and people show up as well. They want to be near him. They want to see miracles. They want to experience the miracles. We've come to expect this. But what's interesting in this text is something happens that we, we maybe haven't expected here. Look at verse 22. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, just a quick reminder here. I think you probably know this, but the difference between the, the temple and the synagogue, I don't know if those get confusing in your mind. The temple is in Jerusalem. There's one temple. Synagogues were built and established anywhere where there were 10 or more Jewish men, and they would gather at the synagogue to worship, um, to hear the scriptures read, to teach, to fellowship with one another. So there's a synagogue nearby. And in a synagogue, there were often a group of men who had the authority in that particular synagogue. So these men would invite uh, people, different people to speak in the synagogues uh, on a weekly basis. They would make sure that the Torah was read properly and in order on a weekly basis. Uh, they would schedule someone to pray. Basically, they would oversee the weekly meetings and the fellowship at the synagogue. These guys didn't necessarily teach the Torah, the, the Old Testament at, at the meetings, but they were responsible to oversee all of this. Now, to be one of the rulers of the synagogue, one of these guys in charge was a pretty honorable thing. And socially, it would have put you several rungs up the ladder. You would have been well respected by the people uh, in your particular community. And so as Jesus comes back to the shore on this side of the Sea of Galilee, this ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, one of these guys, approaches him and he falls at his feet, as we've seen happen time and time again here. And this is a sign of respect and of submission. Obviously, Jairus has heard about Jesus. Maybe he's even heard him teach before. But he recognizes the authority of Christ and he also recognizes his own need. Look at verse 23. Look what he says. And he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. This guy's helpless. I mean, he's reached the end of his rope here. His little girl is sick. And he doesn't have any other options for this. And the way he explains this here is... She's sick, and she is sinking fast. The way it's worded is, she's getting worse and worse and worse, 
And I need you to come now. There's a sense of need. There's a sense of urgency here. And he begs Jesus to come and to do what people know at this point that he can do. So Jairus's faith is expressed by his need here, by his sense of need. And I love the reaction of Jesus. Look at the beginning of verse 24. Simply stated, and he went with him. Jesus responds here to this sense of need, and he goes with him. Now, don't think for a second that Jesus is going to start going somewhere with the potential of a healing taking place, and all the people are just going to hang out by the ocean side or by the seaside here. The crowd moves with Jesus. They go with him. So it's a huge entourage of people that are heading with Jesus and Jairus to hopefully, they think, have his little daughter healed. And the picture that we get here in verse 24, look at this. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Now, it's not just that they're behind him walking. They are all around him. They're bumping into him. And you can sort of picture this movement almost like a flock of birds or maybe a a school of fish. It's just all over the place, and people are, are moving about and bumping into Christ and trying to stay close to him, maybe wanting to hear what he and Jairus are talking about on the walk. They're ebbing, they're flowing, and everybody is bumping into one another. And as they're making their way toward Jairus's daughter, who is in a desperate situation, in need, we find out that she's not the only one who is in need. Look at verse 25. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now, for this whole story, this whole text we're looking at this morning, this is a classic example of what we'll call a sandwich story in the Gospel of Mark. We've already seen at least one of these, and we'll see more of these. Uh, But what happens is he'll launch into a story... And then he'll break another story into the middle, and then he'll go back to the remaining story. All right, so this is a sandwich technique, and it's actually a literary technique that commentators talk about. And the reason this is important for you to know is that when this happens, when Mark recounts the stories in this way with this technique, the center story really becomes the focal point. And both of the stories, he wants you to see the same theme The same lesson is learned from them, but the center story really highlights that theme for us. And so to understand what's happening here is helpful to be able to properly interpret and to read the story that's happening here. So as we begin to see this woman, we get quite a description of her here. If you remember back to the story last week of the demon-possessed man, I told you there was a significant uh, description of this man. It was long and it was detailed. Well, we get the same sort of description here about this woman. And the reason for this description is to, to show you just how much need there is and how desperate this woman's situation is. Listen to the verses 25 and 26. I'll read 25 again. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now, we don't know exactly what the medical issue was here. Uh, Probably some of you may have a better idea of what's going on here, but we don't know exactly But it appears to be some sort of extended menstrual hemorrhaging or bleeding. And it goes on for 12 years here. 
And that length of time, you should read that. That's shocking for her to have endured this for that long. And not only has she endured this for that long of a period of time, but in verse 26, it says that she had suffered much under many physicians. And the word here, you could actually say tortured. She had, she'd been tortured much under the hand of many physicians. Now, I'm very thankful for modern medicine. Um, it makes certain procedures much less painful. But she was not dealing with physicians who had access to pain medication and to modern medical intervention. She was dealing with very primitive medicine. And it was painful in many ways, and it was dirty, and they didn't understand all the things that we understand today. And so she had been going to doctors consistently over these 12 years, and she had apparently experienced that the medical community had to offer and had thrown at this disease. She'd been to these physicians so many times that she had spent all of her money, it says here. She'd spent all of her money to the point where she's financially destitute. She didn't have anything left. This disease has robbed her of her well-being and it's robbed her of her financial resources. But look at what it says in verse 26. She'd spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. It's not like she just maintained where she was. This thing actually got more painful, more cumbersome, and more awful as she went along in this experience. So she's in a terrible state of need. And she obviously recognizes the state of need that she's in here. And I think that's the beginning of her exercising her faith. That she knows that she has a need and she looks to Christ, as we'll see, to fulfill that need. So when you and I bring it to ourselves here, when you and I think about faith in Christ and properly understanding faith, we have to think in terms of our own need. And I think that's why Jesus in Mark 1.15 mentions repentance and faith. Those are two sides of the same coin. It's not just that you trust Christ. In order to trust Christ, you have to turn from your own self-sufficiency, your own pride and your own sin, and turn to him. Before you can trust his work on the cross, you, on the cross you have to know that you need his work on the cross. So that's what we learn here about faith. We have to recognize our need in order to exercise true faith. That brings us to our second key to exercising true faith. In order to properly believe and to properly trust in Christ, you have to understand what faith is. This will be helpful, I think, in explaining the nature of saving faith and true faith. And I think these two stories show us examples of people who did this. And I think this is a a primary teaching in these stories, this faith based on the authority of Christ. And so you have these two people who exercise true faith here. And we're meant to read about them and to admire what they do and then to imitate what they do in our own lives. So as you try to understand true faith, I want to give you three descriptions of faith that will go under this point here, all right, to help us understand this, all right? So first of all, hopefully you can see that, faith results in action. Faith results in action. Look at verses 27 and 28. 
So this woman had a need. And look what it says, verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. And here's why she did that. Here's why she acted. Look at verse 28. For, she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And I love that explanation in verse 28. Think about how simple this is in this description of faith here. She'd heard the reports. She'd gotten the news. And she said to herself, she believed in her heart, if I touch him, I will be made well. She heard She believed and she acted on that news that she had received. Her faith brought her to the point of action. Now, if you had this struggle, this ongoing struggle, and you heard about someone who could instantaneously heal this, if you didn't go to that person, I would say you don't believe that news. There's not true faith there. True faith is not the same thing as acting, but true leads you to act on the news that you have heard. And not only does true faith result in action, but true faith connects you or makes connects you to wholeness and wellness or makes you whole. And this is the second part that we see here regarding true faith. What happens when she acts? What is the result when she acts on her true faith? Let me read to you A big chunk of this story, verses 29 to 34. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? They're befuddled by that sort of uh, response. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now look what Jesus says in verse 34. I just read it, but he says, Your faith... Has made you well. Now, this is an interesting thing for Jesus to say here. Your faith has made you well. I thought Jesus made her well. So, why is he saying this? Does Jesus agree with the modern faith healers that if you just have enough faith in God, that you will be healed of whatever disease is in front of you? Is that what Jesus is is hinting at here? Well, keep in mind when you read this passage that the healings of Jesus aren't just demonstrations of his power. I mean, we've covered this over and over again, and hopefully it's starting to sink in to some level. These aren't just ways that we learn that Jesus is powerful. Remember, all of these miracles are lessons for us on what the kingdom will ultimately be like. These show us the inbreaking of God's kingdom and then ultimately what this kingdom will be like one day. Now, this woman's disease is not a result of her personal sin. Okay, it's it's not like she sinned and she got this disease, but her disease is a result of the reality of sin in the world. She wouldn't have this if the world wasn't broken. If the world wasn't knocked off kilter, 
She wouldn't have this disease. The world is broken. It's messed up. It's misaligned because of sin. And in Christ's kingdom, both sin and sickness will be decisively dealt with. And it's interesting here, verse 34 again, what he says here, daughter, your faith has made you well. You could actually translate that, daughter, your faith has made you saved. It's the word there that's commonly translated saved. And so let me explain it this way. Her faith is the connection point for her entry into Christ's kingdom. Okay, so it was a genuine faith in Christ's person that she exercises here. And the physical wholeness that happens as a result of her faith is a demonstration of the kingdom's nature. This is what the kingdom is like. It is a place where sin will be dealt with and sickness will be dealt with. And so that's what's going on here. And what we learn from this is that faith is the instrument. It's the connection point for entry into the kingdom. It doesn't somehow earn you entrance into the kingdom, but it connects you to Christ's kingdom. You are declared right and whole when your faith is placed in Christ. And ultimately what God declares when that happens to you is that your sin has been dealt with, and one day as you enter into Christ's kingdom, everything about you and about this world will be made whole. And we see an illustration of that here with this woman. And so thinking of our own experience of faith, rightly understood, faith is the instrument that connects us to the work of Christ. Ephesians 2.8, look how it's phrased here. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Faith is the instrument of of righteousness. It's the cord that gives you access to the power, to the electricity, to the work of Christ. And so when you see this and you realize what's going on in the inbreaking of the kingdom, even today, as you trust the word of Christ and grow in your faith, you are slowly but surely becoming more conformed to the image of Christ and becoming who you should be and who you one day will be fully. There is an end goal to this growth process of sanctification. And it will be complete eradication of sin from your daily experience. And it will be complete wholeness of your body and of your soul. And it will be complete joy as we're with Christ for all of eternity. We will be restored to true humanness. To what it means to be fully human. Because we've been broken and the image has been marred right now. But one day, it'll be made right. And that's what, that's what we learn from this text here. And that's why Jesus says, your faith has made you whole. Because it connects her to the kingdom, to the healing, and to the salvation that comes to her. And so it's at this point in the story, we've gotten that center sandwich piece. And it's all focused on the faith Obviously, the authority of Christ in healing, but the faith of this woman. And so now, we transition back to Jairus and to what's going on with him. And this brings us to the third piece, a description of faith here. So faith results in action, faith makes whole, and faith stays focused. Faith stays focused. All right, look at verse 35. 
while he was still speaking. So they're on the road, this huge crowd of people's there, and Jesus is speaking to this woman after she's been healed. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house, Jairus's house, some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? So a group of people come from Jairus's house and they bring the news that his daughter has died. Now, keep in mind, all the way back at the beginning of this story, the request from Jairus had been, Jesus, come, lay your hands on my daughter and heal her. He knew about Jesus and he expected, he believed that Jesus could heal someone from sickness. And he wanted Christ to do it quickly because remember, she was sinking fast. She was going down. So please come now so you can heal her before she dies. That was the request. And the assumption was, probably with everyone here, that once she died, that was it. There's nothing else that could be done for her. And that's why the group of people here say, at the end of verse 35, why trouble the teacher any further? There's nothing he can do anymore. So why even bother him with this? Now, you can imagine what this would have been like for Jairus. He asked Jesus to come. Jesus immediately goes with him and... There's probably great hope in his heart. He obviously loves his little girl, and he's anticipating Jesus walking into that house, laying hands on her and healing her. And he is, he is hopeful, and he is thrilled with the prospect of what might happen. And then this news comes to him after he's just seen Jesus heal, the, heal this other woman, which would have increased his hope even more. And the news comes to him that his little girl has died. And so you can imagine that this would have been absolutely overwhelming to him, standing there on that dusty road. And he probably was starting to come unglued emotionally at this point. This is a tragic situation. But look how Jesus responds here in verse 36. I love this. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. Jesus tells him, listen, I know you feel helpless. Things are out of control. There's nothing you can do. And everyone thinks there's nothing I can do. But here's what you need to do in response to this. Stay focused. True faith maintains its focus on the object of faith. And the way Jesus says this here is, keep on believing. You've trusted, you've come to me, you've acknowledged your need, you've explained your need, and we're going to make this happen. Just keep trusting me. Stay focused on the object of faith. And this is the battle for us, isn't it? I mean, this is is a perfect description of what happens in our lives. Circumstances come up, and those circumstances call for us to respond with despair and with helplessness and with fear and worry. And so in that moment, we can give in to the despair and the worry and the fear, or we can respond by keeping our focus where it should be and where true faith says it needs to be, which is on the object of faith, the one who has authority, Jesus Christ. That's what Christ calls him to here. And I love it because I think there's a certain tenacity to, to, to true faith, right? It's like a dog that gets a hold on something. I speak from personal experience now. 
It's like a dog that gets a hold of something, and you cannot get that dog to let it go. It stays focused and primed on that object, and that's exactly what Jesus is telling Jairus to do here. Keep on believing. Stay focused. And so true faith has a tenacity to it that seeks to maintain its attention on the character of Christ. And that brings us to our last key here. Rely on Christ's authority. And this is where we see everything come together. Verse 37 and 38. Look here. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. So they begin to approach the house. Jesus calls to his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, asks them to go with him inside. And when they come up to the doorway to the house, there's really a great commotion outside the house. And it's obvious from this commotion that that she's died. They understand that it's not sickness anymore. She's passed over into death, and they're reacting to her death here. And obviously, Jairus is a well-known man in the community. He's respected, and so this would have been quite the event for a little girl like this of a respected man to pass away. So there are a lot of people here, and it made a deep impact on the community. Notice how Jesus responds, verse 39. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Does he mean that they're wrong and that she's not actually passed away? And that they've misdiagnosed what's going on here? Well, I don't think the people had made a mistake regarding this little girl and her physical condition. I think what Jesus is saying is that her, her death is actually a lot like sleep. She's unconscious for a while. And it's not going to last forever. She's not going to remain dead. And what should happen here is that people should trust in Christ's power to bring her back. But that's not how they hear the statement here. Look at the first part of verse 40. And they laughed at him. And it's interesting here, if you think back to the parable of the soils and the teaching that Jesus gives his disciples here. They had heard, they heard his words that she wasn't dead, she was sleep, or that she was sleeping. She wasn't going to be permanently dead. They heard those words, but they didn't actually understand them, and they didn't believe them. And it, it does make us think back to the parable of the soils, and it's about the unbelief in their hearts. And because of their unbelief, they, they respond with mockery and with laughter because they don't trust and they don't understand. So look what Jesus does, the rest of verse 40 here. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside, took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. So he's not going to do this miracle in front of people with no faith. The crowd certainly would have loved to have seen a sign, I think, but they don't trust in Christ's person. And in the Gospel of Mark, we've talked about this before, but faith you believe in order to understand. You trust Christ and the understanding of the reality of things comes and of his kingdom. It all comes as you believe. And so here it's almost like Jesus is going to explain this to the group of believers privately. While those who are outside get things in a bit of a parable that she's sleeping and she's not going to remain dead. And look what happens, verse 41. 
Taking her by the hand, he said to her in Aramaic, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And this really fits in quite well with what we've seen the last few Sundays, doesn't it? I mean, all these stories fit together. Jesus speaks to the storm, and it obeys. He commands a horde of demons, and they obey. A woman touches his garment, and 12 years of misery and disease is instantly taken care of. And a little girl who has died, Jesus takes her by the hand, tells her to get up, and death cannot overcome his word. And she immediately stands up, rises from the dead, and begins walking around, showing that she is back to fully functioning normal life. And at the end of verse 43, I love the little detail there, gives her something to eat. She's back. She's normal. She's doing all the things that she did before the sickness overcame her. And their response here fits with what we've seen as well. Look at the end of verse 42. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Yeah, rightfully so in this situation. But verse 43 is interesting. Here's how it ends. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. We've seen this before in the Gospel of Mark. Christ commands them to silence. And it's interesting here because all these people are dead and he's telling them to not talk about it. And it's hard to imagine how this could remain, remain silent here. It's hard to believe that this would actually be a secret for any amount of time at all. But again, this reminds us that Christ doesn't want to openly proclaim who he is until the time is right. And we'll see when that time comes near the end of the gospel of Mark or the middle of the gospel of Mark, actually. But He reveals the truth to his disciples. He teaches them. He wants the good soil of their hearts. But he keeps the reality of who he is hidden from those who are outside who aren't coming to him with true faith. And so what you see here in this this last section, rely on Christ's authority, what you see here is a call to trust the one who can do things like this. Even when we don't fully understand The call is to learn who Jesus is and to respond to his character, as we talked about at the beginning, with faith and trust. One author said it like this. This faith is based on the greatness of the one in whom they are to have faith. This Jesus in whom they believe is worthy of faith, for he is Lord over nature, demons, illness, and death. And that's a great summary of this entire section that we've seen. And the end of this section calls us, I think, to believe, to trust, to look at his character and say, this is someone that I can rely on and that I can trust in. And so I would say faith is not the most overrated of virtues, as Christopher Hitchens said earlier. Faith is actually the essence of our lives. This is why scripture talks so much about faith. And this is why we have to live by faith. You and I don't see God with our physical eyes. But we have news about him. We know his character. We know his work in this word. And our response is to believe and then to act on that faith. 
And as we do that, that gives us purpose, that gives us direction for the race that we're running. Now, I quoted Hebrews chapter 11 earlier. It's a hall of faith is a lot of times what that passage get call, gets called. And it describes and gives us examples of faith and what their faith looked like in the Old Testament. But after going through all of that, the author of Hebrews sort of culminates that passage in Hebrews 12 verses 1 and 2. And I think this is a good way for us to end this morning and a good call for us to keep attention focused on where it needs to be on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then here's how we do that. Here's what it looks like to live by faith, looking to Jesus. And that's why we're studying Mark. That's why we're doing this, because we want to continually look to Jesus. And week in and week out, we want our faith in him to be built. Looking to Jesus, the founder and completer or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And I love that last, those last few phrases because that tells us the work of Christ that we are to believe in and to trust in. It's not just an example for us. It's what he's done that we can trust in. It's both of those things. And so my encouragement to you this week would be look to Jesus in faith and trust him because he's worthy of it. He won't let you down. He's reliable and he's good. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you are, you are trustworthy. You're not capricious. You're not wavering. You are the same. You are good. And so I pray for us as a church body that we would keep our eyes fixed on the personal work of Jesus Christ. Each week as we come in and as we talk about Christ, as we, as we look at him and we see his authority and see his grace and his power, I pray that you would, you would build into us dispositions that believe. Build into us the will to continue to trust in him. Build into us emotions that our first response is to look to Christ rather than to get caught up in our circumstances and in worry and in fear. Build into us intellects that know the truth and that rely on the truth. We can't do this on our own, even as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, Father. It's a gift from you. Faith is a gift. And so we ask you to help us. We want to believe more, and we need your Holy Spirit to work in us. So that's our prayer this morning. Thank you for all you've done. Thank you for what you're continuing to do as you, as you strengthen us and grow us to be more like Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.